to Marriage on the Grow, a special tape series presented by Living Foundation Ministries, which is a Christian counseling and conference ministry located in Blue Springs, Missouri. Dr. Chuck Lynch, the founder of Living Foundation Ministries, invites you to join him in a very frank, though biblical, discussion on how to restore intimacy in marriage. Let's join in and learn how we too can restore that spark in our marriage intimacy. And now, Dr. Lynch. I'd like to thank you for personally taking the time out to share with us and learn with us in a very, very important area that is very, very exciting and fulfilling a lot of fun for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and are experiencing our time together as husband and wife. Probably one of the things I see quite often in the counseling room is when a husband and wife who have been married 15, maybe 20 years, they've settled in with raising children and settled in their careers. They have their mortgages going and car payments and things. But one of the things they're not experiencing is in their act of love, their act of marriage, their sexual relationship. Reminded not too many years ago, I was refinishing a basement in my home, and I inadvertently, while doing some wiring, crossed two wires. And just as soon as those two wires were crossed, the circuit breaker blew in the master box, and we lost all the power. Many times in marriage relationships, those wires get crossed. Those wires get touched, or something goes across them to short-circuit what's taking place in a relationship. Well, many times these things that short-circuit our relationships actually rob us of a lot of joy, rob us of a lot of significant meaning and enjoyment in our marriage. I think one of my favorite verses in terms of pleasure and desire and and celebration of love in marriage is Ecclesiastes 9.9. It says, Enjoy life with the woman, and I put also man, whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Your reward under the sun right now, not in heaven, in eternity, but your reward right now, is your marriage and your marriage relationship. I, I work a lot of long hours and have the privilege of working with a lot of lives and, and there's a lot of pain in people's lives. But now and then I let my mind just wander a little bit to my wife and home. And I think of her almost like at the end of the proverbial trail, at the end of the day that I look forward to going home and being with my wife. And maybe looking forward to being held by her, being kissed by her. Just maybe the two of us being together. And I can personally say that my wife Linda is one of the greatest rewards I have here on earth in terms of relationships. Another passage that's really been, meant a lot to me is Proverbs five, eighteen, and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. It doesn't say young wife. It says, the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you all at all times. Isn't it amazing that God designed the sexual pleasure, the pleasure that you and I have with the wife or husband of our covenant? He designed it. 
He designed it to be enjoyed. He designed it to be a source of pleasure and fulfillment and release and relaxation and bonding. In fact, we're told in Hebrews 13:4, you know, let your let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That is not just a matter of adultery, because he goes on to say, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, but it can be defiled in relationships, in attitudinal relationships. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5 is very interesting. It says, Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and like all, likewise also the wife to her husband. By the way, did you notice it's a two-way street? It is not just wives do this for him, but there is also a reciprocal one for husbands towards the wife. He goes on to say, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, it doesn't stop there. Look at the rest of the passage. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, it is a mutual submission. It's a mutual sharing. And friend, it isn't just one taking advantage of the other at the other's expense, but it is a mutual giving and a mutual sharing. What I'd like to do in just the the short time that we have together I'd like to discuss with you some of the things that short-circuit, that, so to speak, blows the power box, the thing that reduces the enjoyment and the pleasure and the, and the excitement that can come and that uh, is God designed for the marriage to have, but what short-circuits it? What, what causes it not to be able to be enjoyable? I think if you were to ask me as a, as a professional marriage counselor, what is the number one cause of short-circuiting the sexual, physical, emotional relationship between a husband and wife, the number one I had put at the top is unresolved anger. You say, why is that the case, Chuck? Well, because sex is an emotional function. That's right, not just a physical function. And anger towards anyone can just shut it down or short-circuit it. It does not need to be uh, anger necessarily directed towards a spouse. You say, no, wait a minute. (laughs) That's the person I'm living with. Well, you can also have anger towards a boss, uh, a neighbor, a father, a brother, a sister, a mother or dad. And that anger and the object of that anger can short circuit you in the bedroom. Now, forget a young lady that who's... uh, husband was in full-time Christian work and when she came and started sharing that uh, she just really had absolutely no interest in her husband sexually and she quote-unquote fulfilled her duty but there was no reciprocal pleasure there was just nothing there from her own perspective and and I had this list in my mind and I, and I said to her Sharon that really wasn't her name but I said Sharon um, this may sound like a strange question but but would you would you go through the computer of your mind and and see if you can come up on a screen a picture of anybody that you might be angry with, someone who has deeply hurt you and it still continues to hurt inside? Well, it was just like she stuck a wet finger in a light socket. Her her eyes lit right up, and she immediately uh, had a name and face that came to her mind. And guess who it was? Is a brother. It was a brother. And so I asked her if she'd be willing to share with me what uh, 
what had transpired, how the hurt had taken place. And, and many years ago, he was an older brother, and he used her sexually when uh, they were living at home. And as we worked through uh, the whole process of the sexual misuse now, and abuse that had taken place by this older brother towards his younger sister, that uh, and as she was able, over a, a short period of time, and certainly not to come to a total joy and acceptance, but to work through the steps of forgiveness, she was able to do that. Well, I remember she coming back to another session, and uh, she said, you'll never guess what's happened, and I obviously did not know. Well, she had told me in the past that her sexual relationships with her husband were more or less duty functions. And then she made this statement. She says, you know, I find myself kind of following him around the house now and wanting to, period, 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 period. And this little smile came over her face. You see, what happens that unconsciously or subconsciously, anger that we may have towards a brother, sister, or somebody else can be transferred over to our spouse, and we not even know it. You see, anger fixates a person at the time of the hurt. So what was happening is as though she had been hurt as a young child and grown up in an adult body, emotionally she was still, she was still stuck as a young, young child. And she began to release her brother from the offenses she was able then to grow. So what I really strongly suggest for you, if you're struggling in this area, and everyone must struggle in, in many areas, including this area of our sexual relationship, ask yourself that very probing question. Is there somebody, a father, mother, brother, someone that you're very angry against and very angry at? And then if you would consider, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking that person and it could be even your mate, for that matter. And taking that person over to the Lord Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, this is my brother, mother, sister, husband, wife. And I now transfer him, her, over to you. I transfer them over to you, and I now release them for, and then spell out in detail what you are transferring them over for. And then leave them there with the Lord Jesus. Because revenge is mine, saith the Lord, says the scripture. And it's God's responsibility to deal with him. But you see, once you have turned that person over to the Lord Jesus, to him, to deal with them as he would see fit, that then frees you up emotionally. Remember, I said sexual pleasure also involves emotions. And now, if you are giving 40% of your emotions to this anger, now you've got 40% more emotions back that you can use to enjoy the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. A second area that I find that uh, short-circuit sexual relationships and things that, that really rob us of the pleasure of celebrating our love in a physical way is anxiety. You say, what in the world is anxiety? Well, anxiety, as you've often heard say, is is the fear of the unknown. Now, fear is something that you can tangibly see. If I see a car coming at me, it's about to hit me, I'll fear that car. I can see it. 
But you see, anxiety is, I have a feeling there might be a car somewhere around. I don't see it anywhere, but it just could come up someplace. I don't see it, but I feel very anxious about it. There are usually four sources of anxiety, of this unknown fear. The first one is a feeling that I don't want to feel. A feeling I don't want to feel. If I have a fear of maybe feeling unloved and my sexual relationship or my relationship with my husband or wife is going to remind me of that fear, when I start having a sexual relationship or move towards that direction, anxiety can come up and I will have a fear of something coming up that I don't want to feel. Maybe there is a truth I don't want to see. Maybe there's a truth that's coming up that I don't want to acknowledge in my mind. A truth about something. Maybe, furthermore, there's a responsibility I don't want to assume. A responsibility I don't want to assume. And finally, maybe there's a motive. Maybe there's a motive I don't want to acknowledge. And these are just things like in a basement that are starting to walk up the basement stairs to the first floor. And we're on the first floor and we hear something coming up the steps. So we quickly go over and bar the door and we do not let whatever it is coming up to come up that is anxiety that's coming up in our life but anxiety will shut you down if you're very anxious it's very hard to enjoy sexual pleasure if there's a lot of anxiety there the third area that short circuits sexual relationships is the fear of the known the fear of the known and by the way this fear also feels fear feels just like anxiety, but they just have two different sources. Some of the common fears that I run across into in the counseling room is maybe the first one is a fear of pregnancy. You see, men get a little myopic, a single-minded focused when their testosterone kicks in and they want to have sexual relationship. They do not think about necessarily what, it was, what are the ramifications in terms of a pregnancy coming along? And we realize that children are the heritage of the Lord. I personally feel that a family has a right to, to before the Lord, determine what their family is going to be like, and that's a personal matter. But if, for example, the wife is afraid that if, if, I, if I tonight give him this sexual pleasure and we have not prepared for this time there'll be a lot of fear there and this fear will shut her down I've had men this fear shuts them down because of just a lot of pressure that would come if, if another child came in to the family the fear of finances you know it's very very hard when you've got a lot of financial pressures a lot of bills and and people calling and letters coming and things like that a fear of finances can shut down sexual pleasure. A fear of abuse. A fear of being hurt. Uh, maybe hurt in that physical relationship. Sometimes it's a fear of abandonment. You mean what, what do you mean fear of abandonment? Well, it's like if if I let you in to me in an intimate way, and if I love you, there's the possibility that you could leave me. So to keep from me feeling that fear or keep me from experiencing that rejection, I am going to keep you at arm's length. Now, it's very hard to keep it at arm's length and have a physical relationship. But if, you, if you're nursing a fear of abandonment, this, this right down inside will keep you locked up inside where you cannot enjoy the sexual relationship. Just bear in mind 
The most important sex organ you have is your brain, not your genitalia. Your brain is your most important sex organ. That is where all of the nerves and all the processing comes up to your brain and is processed in your brain, not necessarily just in your sexual organs. There's also a fear of rejection that comes out, maybe comes out in performance. What if I do not, I cannot or do not or will not perform in a certain way to his or her expectations? And sometimes this fear comes out in a turndown when maybe he he is going he's he is interested in a sexual relationship and she says no. I like something my wife said one time. She said uh we were experiencing some times together and there was some, some reason that she was not able to and she says uh to the aunt, to me that to me she says the answer is yes but not now. And I thought that's pretty creative. But you see that fear of turndown and you see when a man opens up himself and exposes himself in terms of sexual need, um, and because his value many times and his manhood many times is attached to his um, sexual abilities and things like that, and she says, says no, it's a slap in his face. But there are times the answer should be no. You see, men and women struggle with this thing too. Saying no takes an act of grace, frankly. Often there are, again, legitimate reasons. A person says, I am just too tired. I mean, the kids have kept me going all day long, and the last thing I can do is get excited emotionally about doing something like this. Uh, there are normal days when the hormones are up and down and around, and I just don't feel well. Or maybe there's a time of month, or maybe there's a, it's just a pressure. There are legitimate times of saying no. But at this point, loving honesty. Loving honesty is very important. In fact, it's important to share with your spouse um, if the real re- that the real reason is not him or not her. If she has to say no to him, it's important for you as a wife say, Honey, I love you. And I look forward to being embraced in your arms. I look forward to, to being held by you, touched and fondling and kissing. But right now, I... This is not a made-up thing. I do have a headache. <laughs> Someone told me that the uh, the ultimate compatibility is when you both have a headache headache the same night. Well, I'm not really sure that's compatibility, but there are times there are real reasons that we're we're not able to share or perform. But see, it must be talked through. It must be talked through. We as men, we 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 extend ourselves. We open ourselves. The answer is no. We shut down. Pout. Uh, withdraw and don't talk. Well, this subtle rejection is usually interpreted personally. And sometimes it's interpreted that I'm not sexually appealing or I'm not sexually stimulating. And both spouses cannot stand being unattractive or unappealing to each other. It can be misinterpreted. But the important point that you need to see here is that if the answer is no, please make it clear that it is not a rejection of the other person. Say, but wait a minute, what if it is? What if it is? What if this person over here, my husband and wife, they're just doing things, then say, honey, I I want to give myself to you. I want to enjoy the mutual ecstasy. In fact, the word in the, in the, the Old Testament uh, is intoxicating. It's, it's something where you are just ecstatic in terms of your sexual pleasure. But tell your husband, tell your wife, I want that. 
But can I share something with you? There's something that's crossing the wires, that's short-circuiting the power. Now, we can curse the night or we can light a candle tonight. We can, we can say that shouldn't happen, but that does not undo the fact that it has happened. See, both fear not being able to satisfy each other. See, this is just another one of those those fears of a feeling I, I work, I, I regardless of how hard I try, I can't satisfy it. Women will even sometimes feign an orgasm to please a husband. She will act like she is having an ecstatic orgasm when that is not the case. And he has led to the conclusion that what he is doing is really fulfilling to her, and they both are, she's living a lie, and he's believing a lie, and so he doesn't change, and so she gets, she may feign the orgasm or fake it, but down deep, she's getting bitter by the moment. And again, bitterness or anger will short-circuit. It'll cross the wires, and the power and the enjoyment will go down. A wife needs to reassure her husband that she is satisfied many times. But this is what men don't understand. And I frankly, I didn't understand this. My, my wife is a tremendous help to me. A wife can be satisfied in terms of physical satisfaction with just a demonstration of gentleness, caressing. Appropriate touching, soft words, physical closeness. I remember one time my, uh, my wife, uh, I was holding her tightly, and she said to me, Honey, I live on your words. Well, being a marriage counselor, I said to myself, Boy, that is a codependent statement if I ever heard it. But then almost instantly, God's Spirit ran a thought through my mind. And a verse came to my mind, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, God established and made and created us that we are to live on His words. We are to thrive on His words. But then the verse came into my mind, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And as we as the church thrive on the words of Christ in Scripture, so our wives thrive on the words that we share with them. And I'll tell you what, that, that completely changed my perspective. Because, you see, we as men get involved in our sexual pleasure, in our fondling, our petting, our kissing. We don't say anything. And what that does for the wife is that she will begin to have feelings. This is not a fact, but a feeling that she's a whore. She's a prostitute. When a wife tells me in a counseling room, I I feel like a prostitute when he touches me. The husband's eyes dilating as big. What are you talking about? We're married. We've been married for 15, 20, 30 years. I have never touched another woman. I have never. What do you mean a prostitute? Because she feels that all he wants is her earth suit, as Bill Gillum would say, her body. The man says, no, I, I love her. Okay, tell her. Use words. But you say, we as men don't know how to do that. It's not easy for us. It's very important. And I've had men, I tell them, go in the bathroom, close the door, turn the water, and look in a mirror and practice. They say, well, that's, that's, that's artificial. That, 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 that doesn't work. I says, listen, friend, 
Every football club I know of practices during the week before a game. And they practice. So when it comes to the real McCoy, we used to call it scrimmaging, where we would we divide up the teams and we would practice on each other and then we go out and do the real game on a Friday or Saturday night. But you say practicing. And then ask your wife, what are the kinds of words? Help me, coach me. And I'll tell you what, the benefit, friend, is going to be very, very significant. You see, if a man doesn't feel like he can satisfy his wife or a wife doesn't feel that, that she can satisfy her husband, then that threats him, threatens him right to a core. If a man has a feeling that regardless of what he does, he cannot please, sexually please his wife, that is like a knife into his manhood. Just like a knife. And so he may go out and seduce or involve himself with other women for the sole purpose was to prove his manhood. Well, actually, if your manhood is attached to your genitalia singularly, then you really do have a problem. Because our value is not attached to our sexual prowess. But our sexuality is important. But our values value is totally in our relationship with Jesus Christ and what he thinks of us. And we are totally accepted by him. You see, both the husband and wife may feel that they cannot perform as well Maybe compared to somebody else. That's the reason where there's been a second marriage, a third marriage involved, or there's been uh, premarital sexual activity, fornication before the marriage. There's a lot of comparisons that come into the mind. But you see, comparison, com- comparing uh, spouses or comparing one with another is very unwise. In fact, we're told in Second Corinthians ten twelve, for we are not... Uh, for we are not to compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but when they compare themselves or measure themselves, compare themselves with themselves, they are not without understanding. They, they just don't understand that in comparing each other, there is just a lot of, of lack of understanding. Comparison is usually a hot button of anger and revenge. You're, you're, you're just comparing me to, or you're just not like, or whatever. But I'll tell you what, if you want to drive a knife into a heart, compare. And you may have to ask God to cleanse your mind if you've had some past sexual involvement. Because not everybody does everything the same way. That's true. Ridicule. I mean, of course, things that we fear. Ridicule is something else we fear. Ridicule or shaming by either spouse is devastating and needs to be confessed and forgiven. Some have ridiculed each other, or maybe over the size or shape of a particular love organ, a penis, or the size of the breasts. It's ironic to me that in the, in the literature I've read on the motivation between breast implants, we as men think that women have breast implants to enlarge their breasts for us as men, but the, the, the research indicates that most women who have a breast implant do not do it for men. They do it for other women. Now, by I don't mean in a lesbian way. I am talking about that the feeling they feel about themselves so they can feel better around other women. Because husbands have said, listen, I, uh, I'm just dissatisfied with the size of your breasts the way they are. But they'll still go out and get an implant. 
Now, it's true, there are some men that want them to do that. I understand it. But percentages, that the highest percentage, of number one reason for a woman getting a breast implant is not for her husband, for men. It's for other women. And, men, and basically, how a woman feels about herself. Well, she has a core belief that I will feel better about myself if my breasts are larger. But you see, larger breasts does not equal happiness because there are many large breast women that are very, very unhappy. You see, fear not only of measuring up can um, be a challenge, a short-circuiting, but, but a fear of trying to measure up to mutual expectations. What are his expectations for me? What are her expectations of me? And so it's important to share with each other. You see, if a husband feels that she expects him to bring her to an orgasm every time, he will concentrate on trying to do that for her each time, not knowing that maybe for whatever reason she is not going to have one, but she enjoys, as I've already said, the touching, the feeling, the caressing, the holding, the tender words. And so if he knows that her expectation level is not an orgasm every time, then he is free to do what he can, work with his wife in the lovemaking to bring her to whatever and that they can be mutually satisfied. I will have to hasten to say, for a man, unless he ejaculates in the relationship, in the sexual relationship, he does not get satisfied. And so for a wife to understand that he needs to have an ejaculation for satisfaction, he, you see, a wife says, we'll, sit, we'll lie here, we'll have love making everything, but I, I, just, I just want the frosting on the cake, I don't want the whole cake at all. Well, men are not made that way. However, there's a little, there's a little thing called self-control. And self-control may need to be where a husband will devote an evening of just sharing affection with her without having the main event. You see, even the ability and frequency of sexual relationships will vary with age. Uh, I might make a comment on that. The highest level of the hormones are in the 20s. That's a childbearing age. And these hormones de decrease through the years. But they do not, as some have said, they do not peter out on the other end. There are many, many geriatric couples that are having an exciting sex life. It may not be every night. I don't know whoever does it every night. But there's, there, it may diminish uh, in terms of its frequency. But uh, old age is not a sanctifier of the flesh. Old age does not take away entirely the sexual desire. But you see, the ability and frequency will vary with age. Stress. Stress will vary the timing. Pressure. Maybe just a rapport with your mate will vary these times. But age alone is not a factor in ability or frequency necessarily. Then there's another fear that comes up, the fear of male impotence. Now this is kind of something that's come out of the closet uh, these last 10 years, but it's very real. And a male, again, his self-value many, many times is attached to his sex drive, his ability to perform, his ability to bring his wife to completion in terms of an orgasm, his ability, his prowess in terms of lovemaking. See, a wise wife will make it a point to affirm her husband's lovemaking. And gals, that's important. 
you say, yes, but there's only about one or two things he does. I have all the things he does. It really makes me feel good. All right, affirm him in those one or two areas. And then if I can, the scripture says again, to share the truth in love. Explain to him what does feel good. One, one time my wife said to me, she said, honey, would you massage my feet? And I thought to myself, feet? Feet? Not a whole lot of uh, things going for me in terms of my Christian life. And I used to think if she put her feet up on my back that she was just kind of warming them or something, but she likes to have her feet massaged. I had never thought of that. I, it would never even enter my mind. And so when her feet start coming up on my back or something, I uh, that's kind of a nonverbal communication. I reach down and I start massaging the, the balls of her feet and uh, around the there. And she enjoys it. But see, I would have never known that. It would never cross my mind. And so I didn't say, oh, my, you know, you want your feet massaged. No, I said, honey, if that's what you like, I'll be happy to. And see, something else wives would really wish we as guys would understand. That please, when we start in the sexual relationship, don't start around the waist. Start around the neck the ears, the head. Start with words. Don't make the first attack down below the waist. First approach. Talk to her. Run your fingers through her hair. Ask her how she would like to be touched. You see, one of the reasons that men don't do that is because they put so much value and so much attachment on their ability to have sex and their skill in giving it that they are not about to let any woman know under heaven and earth, given among men, <laughs> that they do not know how to do it. But you see, if you would just, if you would say, look, I won't learn. I'm humble myself. I'm willing to learn. Would you please share with me? Because you see, sometimes a man, out of his fear, may experience a uh, malfunction sexually or maybe he can't get an erection, or maybe he can't ejaculate. And that, that malfunction is just like a trigger. It shoots a fear into his mind. And then that, in some men, it can even create a neurosis, create a, a, a difficult thing in his mind, because now he's thinking, oh my, I'm impotent, or I, I can't perform. But that's not the case. I think if couples would just sit down, or lie down, <laughs> whatever, and talk, you see, emotions are very hard for men to share. We have had emotions, frankly, reamed out of us as men. You see, men don't cry. Cowboys don't cry. We go to psychiatric hospitals, we get drunk, we're adulterers and everything else, but we don't cry. And God designed the tears. And so we as men don't cry. We see crying as weakness. It's hard to look at that man on the cross, the God-man, dying on our behalf for our sin it's hard to look at what he went through and call him a wimp because Jesus wept and so emotions are very 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 hard for a man but you see we have one emotion that we're very easy with and express anger anger is macho but to ever say the word fear why? 
No, we just don't do that. And to share with your wife, you know, I, I just had a fear come through me of, of being impotent or maybe not being able to function or something like that. Share that fear with her. And women, when they do that, you, you're able to do three things very naturally. Comfort, support, and encourage. That's the time to do it. And that's what he's looking for. So there's a lot of fears and sources of fears. And those sources of fears can, like again, short circuit, a touching two wires or crossing two wires and losing the power and enjoyment. Perhaps a fourth area that, that shuts down our intimacy and really robs us, frankly, of a lot of pleasure is guilt and shame. First of all, guilt. Let's, can we take a look at that for a minute? There is valid guilt. What is valid guilt? Well, valid guilt means I'm worthy of blame. I'm willing, worthy of blame. There's something I have done and I deserve the blame. And so whenever there's something comes up, God's Spirit convicts us of valid guilt for something we've done. Basically, 1 John 1, 9, and if you read the whole chapter of 1 John, the word fellowship is used four times. The emphasis of 1 John is fellowship, not salvation. That book was not written to unsaved people. That book was written to save people. And God wants to have fellowship with us. And so he explains what hinders or inhibits the fellowship. An offense hinders the fellowship. Like a hurt to husband and wife hinders the fellowship that nets out in an inability to enjoy the sexual pleasure one with another. But if you've in your mind you've got valid guilt, you're something you're uh, you've done. Maybe you've had some guilt over premarital sex. And that guilt over the premarital sex or adultery or something like that will will just ream out, will just reduce any sexual pleasure that you may have in your marriage. Affairs can cause marital impotency because memories, you, know, you walk into your bedroom and, and the atmosphere of the bedroom can produce as a trigger can remind you of what you did with somebody else in another place and there'd be a tremendous amount of guilt. You see, God has already told us about this, about the so reap concept. Galatians 6, 7, you know, do not be deceived. You know, don't lie to yourself. Why? Because God's not mocked. Somehow we think we can do what we very well please do, and God is out bass fishing somewhere, and he's got a clue what's going on. It, but the scripture says, don't, don't lie to yourself. God is not mocked. Because whatever you and I sow, the Greek is very emphatic here. This very thing you will reap. But there's an interesting thing about reaping. When I used to plant gardens years ago, if I put a kernel of corn in the ground, I never got one kernel back. I got a whole stock and a whole ear. You see, you always reap more than you sow. You even reap longer than you anticipate. But you see, if, if valid guilt comes in our minds comes up to us by God, conviction of God's Spirit, process it biblically. First John 1 9, you know, again, I, I have led many people to Jesus Christ. God's Spirit actually did it. He using me. I understand that. And I have used 1 John 1 9 in personal evangelism. I feel it's valid to use this verse in application, but in interpretation. This was not written to unsaved people, this was written to Christians. He says, if we confess our sins, now confess does not mean 
inform God of something he doesn't know about. When I, when I confess my sin to God, God doesn't go, oh my, you did that? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I'm glad you told me. No, confession means I agree with God that what I did was wrong. I agree with God. I see my sin as God sees my sin. I own up to, I admit to him. And he says, listen, if we would just acknowledge our sin, he just rushes in with, he is faithful. His faithfulness comes right in. His righteousness to forgive our sins and to cleanse us, not from some unrighteousness, but all unrighteousness. You see, memories after we've confessed it must be a springboard to forgiveness and be and let the, the springboards re bring back to us what we did with our sin, not to recall to beat us over the head about our past sin. Much could be said more about that, but there's that's legitimate guilt. Then there is illegitimate guilt, or what we call false guilt. Inappropriate blame. Maybe blame that's been put on us. For example, if you were raised as a child and, and you were told that sexual, uh, all sexual activity is wrong and that sex is dirty, sex is bad. It's amazing the people who say that, the mothers and dads. And, I, and for the most part, I'm just going to say that they were well-intended. Their goal was not to ream out or uh, inhibit their children from enjoying sexual pleasure later on. For the most part, it was kind of like the scare pair to try to keep us from being involved in sexual sins until we were married and then enjoy it. But you see, there are many uh, more so women than men that, that when they get married, you, you think the wedding ring, the wedding ceremony, you know, that is going to stop all of the tubuitis that was in, in, uh, brought upon them and inflicted on them as children. Uh, one um, family member said to my wife before she married, now remember, sex is just for men, not for women. And you have no idea the devastation that I had on my dear wife when that was a right, flat-out lie. But you see, that family member was, was counseling the young bride-to-be out of her own bad experience. You see, false guilt. False guilt means that we do not deserve the blame. So, yes, but Chuck, I did fornicate before I was a Christian. I, I had premarital sex. Well, did you confess it to the Lord Jesus? Did you confess it as sin? Yes. Did he forgive you? Yes. Are you now worthy of blame? Yes. Oops. You are. How can you be worthy of blame for something that you've been forgiven? Yeah, but I did it. I know you did it. But once you confess it and it's forgiven, you are no longer worthy of blame. Now, it's appropriate to have the, the emotion of grief Maybe some sadness you did it. Those are appropriate emotions. But grief and sadness is totally different than guilt. And so false guilt is blaming, feeling worthy of blame for something that was not processed, not necessarily something you didn't do. There are things I have done. But once it's confessed to the Lord Jesus and I give and receive forgiveness, I am no longer worthy of blame. So it is also valid shame. You say, what in the world is there between shame and, and, uh, and guilt? Well, basically, shame is a painful feeling for things that we've done. 
it's a painful feeling of things we've done. Now, there is false shame, there is valid shame. Paul writing to Corinthians, he says, I say this to your shame. They were had done some things and they deserved the painful feelings for the sin they have done. But once it's confessed and forgiven, then that that shame is then taken away. You say, what do you mean? Well, because Jesus did not die just for our sin. We're told in Scripture, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Which means, now, whose shame was that? Was that his or ours? It was his, wasn't it? Okay. If I was your enemy, and I wanted to do you under... I would let you give Jesus Christ your sin and then I would have you keep your shame and I know I'll destroy you here because of the shame. To say whatever we have been, uh, uh, we'll see shame, I got back up here for a minute, shame can come from three different sources. One of the first sources it comes from are things we have done. I've mentioned that. But also there's a sense of shame of things that were done to us. One out of every six men, six men have been sexually abused by older men. One out of six. One out of four women have been sexually abused uh, by whoever. And that's a very conservative percentage, by the way. And so there's a, there's a sense of shame of something that's been done to us. You'll hear the statement, damaged goods. Well, damaged goods is not a biblical term. That's a demonic term. We have no damaged goods. We have forgiven goods, and that's different. Restoring intimacy in marriage will be continued on side two.